Thank you for tuning in to Times Like Now. I'm Trevor Collins. Be sure to listen to past episodes wherever you get your podcasts, Google, Spotify, Pandora, and more. On this episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Frank James. He has been active in teaching research and medical practice, both at home and abroad, for 20 years. He's practiced and traveled medicine in Whatcom and San Juan counties. He's also a clinical assistant professor at the University of Washington School of Public Health. He's involved in service projects in India, Nepal, Taiwan, and East Timor, and is the executive director and creator of Travel Medicine Northwest on this episode of Times Like Now. Hello, Dr. James. Thank you so much for your time and for joining me here on Times Like Now. It's good to be here. Tell me a little bit about your experience with your overseas travel, your Travel Medicine Northwest. Now, you're based in Bellingham, Washington, right here in the Pacific Northwest, but Travel Medicine Northwest, what does that organization do? Well, Travel Medicine Northwest is a business that helps people go abroad. We, we take care of their pre-travel needs like immunizations and medication prevent malaria, that sort of thing. We also help people find volunteer posts abroad if they want to work in communities. We, we have projects in a number of communities. And then finally, if somebody comes back sick, if they have malaria, if they have dengue or chikungunya or some tropical disease, we take care of folks when they come back if they're ill as well. Okay. How long has this organization been around? Well, I've been doing travel medicine for almost 30, 35 years. Um, I did it originally as part of the health departments in San Juan County and in Whatcom County. And um, those health departments, as they shrank during the budget recession in 2008, quit doing those, those kinds of activities. And so I, really in self-defense, I was getting three or four or five calls a day of asking advice. And so I just opened a business that does that, uh, that provides pre and post travel care. I see. I was looking over your website, uh, which, what is the website real quickly? Travel Medicine Northwest. Looking over the website and I saw one of the things you do is to help avoid people or excuse me, help people avoid unnecessary immunizations. Well, a lot of people think they know what they want or need, and sometimes they don't really need it. For example, uh, there are two vaccines in particular that are problematic. One is uh, Japanese encephalitis, and the other is rabies. Both are extremely expensive vaccines, uh, about $600 for Japanese encephalitis, about about $1,000 for the rabies vaccine. Um, Japanese encephalitis, we actually have an inferior vaccine available in the United States. It's a very old vaccine. There's not much demand for it, so it's expensive. Um, if, if it's possible to route people through a place like Bangkok, I, I uh, have them go to a clinic there where they can get uh, a vaccine for a, a small fraction of the cost that it is here. And it's actually a better vaccine because in that part of the world, it's actually a routine childhood immunization. So everybody gets it. And so it's uh, $16 a dose instead of 600 and a, one dose instead of two. And with the second dose, it lasts for the rest of your life. Whereas the one we have here is a, a really an inferior product. I see. Rabies, for example, is a, is also very expensive and also has significant side effects. And so I try to work with people to find alternatives to those those kinds of vaccines. And how has your business and your work been since COVID? People not traveling as much uh, has that been a, a big effect to you? 
Yeah, I've got two kind of classes of people I've dealt with during the past 15 months. One, uh, the regular casual traveler who I basically talk out of traveling uh, because it really isn't safe most places. And the other group are people that are long-term clients that, uh, for example, the videographer, the personal videographer, Bill and Melinda Gates uh, is one of my clients, not for the corporation, not not for the foundation, but just for them personally. And he travels anyway. Um, he's a young, healthy, very smart, very sophisticated guy. And I think that he can do it safely, but it takes all of my wisdom to <laughs> and effort to keep him safe during those kind of trips during these times. There's a few other travelers like that that I do help people that have long-term commitments abroad. Uh, but mostly what I've been doing is helping people with COVID. Um, so in our community, I offer testing to businesses that want to have a, a program where they can just get their people tested without any any delay. They can simply get them tested immediately at one of the local labs at, at the Northwest Lab. And that's been a, a very popular service with a number of businesses in town so that all their employees can just get immediately tested and I can help them understand what those tests mean. Glad to, uh, glad to know that you're doing that. Now you work with local tribes or at least one local tribe with the Nooksack in, in this area, correct? Well, I've, I've worked with Lummi, the Lummi tribe for almost 30 years. I'm not an employee there. I helped to run a, a, um, a large federal grant there for almost 17 years. And then, um, for the past 15 years, I've, though I've been actually the health officer, just like a county health officer, but for the Nooksack Indian tribe. And I've, um, and health officers kind of do the public health part of things, not individual care, but the health of the community is the main focus of my work there. I see. You've been working with the, the tribes with COVID issues. What's been, I guess, what have you seen or felt or, you know, experienced with COVID within the tribe? What's been different? What's been the same? How has this been handled from that side of of things. Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, tribes nationally have about three and a half times more likelihood of becoming infected with COVID. They're about twice as likely to die from COVID unless you're between 20 and 50 when there's almost 10 times higher risk of mortality for tribal members. And uh, a lot of people jump to the fact that they're biologically different. I don't think that's true at all. I think they're socially different. Uh, many tribal members are essential employees and they have to go to work. They can't work from home generally. Um, they also have very high density in their homes. So I think the least dense home that I've worked with on, on Nooksack uh, and on Lummi is about nine people in one two-bedroom house. That, that's the least dense in there. I've certainly dealt with homes where there were 14 people. The social values of community and family and supporting one another are very entrenched and very important values in the community so that everybody has a home. And, uh, but sometimes those homes are extremely crowded. And I think that crowding and the fact that they often have basically essential work, work where they've got to be present to do it, those things and, and, and a few other factors um, lead to a very high risk of infection and a higher risk of death. They also have a higher rate of comorbidities. That's kind of a fancy word that says they have things like diabetes and heart disease to start with. Um, so there are, uh, there are very high risk compared to other populations. What's been wonderful and very rewarding with the Nooksack um, is that two little old ladies who are very dear to my heart, um, Adonia and Juana, that started making masks very early on. I mean, probably a year ago in January, I think they started making them. And they made masks for every man, woman, and child in the tribe. 
and a lot of other people too. They've made 20, 30,000 masks. They make them every day. They make hundreds of them some days. Um, so that everybody early on, everybody in the tribe had a mask. And the, the, that core value of protecting other people, I mean, the reason you wear a mask is not to protect yourself, it's to protect the people you're around uh, from them becoming infected. And so they began to make these masks. They wanted, they came to me to say, what's the most scientifically accurate way to make them? So they had three layer masks with filtration, um, excellent fit. They would customize them for children, for young adults, for, for uh, anybody that needed them tailored, they would tailor them. They did things like add small little uh, uh, kind of pieces of cloth at the top, around the top of the mask so that your glasses could sit on them and they wouldn't fog up. They made brilliant, beautiful, culturally appropriate masks. And uh, they're just wonderful. And they were widely adopted. It became a core value in the community. That if you weren't wearing a mask, you were being rude. You, and it was, it was not, not, uh, not, not tolerated socially. I, I attribute the I attribute the great success of the Nooksack tribe to those two women. Um, there were lots of other things that the tribe did that were effective too, but that was the core of it. And the astounding thing is, they were the last tribe in the United States to have a case of COVID. They went almost a year with no cases, and then unfortunately, that that was going to be my next question, Doctor. That was my next question: is what is some of the the comparative numbers? between the general populace and, and the Nooksack, for instance. So that, that's very refreshing to hear that they were actually conferring with a doctor and, and doing things and doing things for the community. That's, that's quite refreshing, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, it's, it's very heartwarming, and the ex- extreme success that they expe- experienced because of that. Uh, they've only had one death in the entire tribe during the last 15 months um, and that was due to COVID and that's extraordinarily successful. Um, now, what is the numbers within that, within that they're tribe? About, they're about 2000 tribal members. Um, it's, it's not a big tribe, okay. but it's, you know, it's substantial. Um, no, uh, one is a, is a, that's a, a very low number in any circumstance. I was I've just curious. Say, when that person died, it, really affected me because he was the head of uh, human resources. When I first came to the tribe 15 years ago, he was a kind man. He was very thoughtful. He would smiled easily. He was wonderfully happy man. It, it really it's like being punched in the stomach when it was heat, that particular person that passed away. It was very hard on me personally. And I know it was hard on his, he's got a big family who are wonderful people. Um, and it was, um, a really hard, hard time for all of us. I'm, I'm sure it was. Now the tribes have a, uh, a sense of community that I, that we've been describing here and that I've had described to me that I don't know if other communities maybe recognize the work that they do and the charity work that they do uh, with other and within other communities. What have you witnessed in all your time? What's some examples? The of tribes have been extraordinarily generous. I mean, they have uh, months ago, several months ago, they reached out to our local school district who were very concerned about opening schools. And they offered to immunize and did immunize all the high risk teachers in two different school districts adjacent to where they are there. And that's when they hadn't immunized all their own people. It was a very difficult choice. Politically, that's a really hard thing to do. Um, in addition, they uh, they have continued to reach out, and they they've had clinics uh, uh, 
you know, they immunize me, they immunize my wife, they immunize my son. But it wasn't just me. They they had they just finished their fifth clinic over the past few weeks where they had anybody that wanted to be immunized could come in and get immunized. Anybody didn't matter. Uh, a gentleman from China, literally from China here, um, you know, legally and with a passport and all, but he had very uh, little understanding of the system and was very afraid. And they took him in and they immunized him. But they've immunized uh, many, many young people who were, they have access to that. We, we bought a freezer early on, one of the minus 80 freezers, so we could have both Moderna and Pfizer. And the Pfizer vaccine can be given to 16 to 18-year-olds and the, and the Moderna can't. So many of the people didn't have access to that Pfizer vaccine for those 16 to 16 to 17-year-olds. And so they opened it up to immunize really literally anybody that came through the door with the proper consent and, and with their parents uh, for free. Um, it's an extraordinary service. Um, the, the LUMI have been also very generous and extremely successful. They reached out to the, the Ferndale community, uh, to their schools, and they, they, they provided 1,000 immunizations to the school staff and to, the, and, and to their families. Um, you know, and they, the LUMI didn't give them the vaccine. They, provide, they gave the vaccine to those people. Uh, same thing with Nooksack. You know, they didn't just give them the vaccine. They actually provided the immunizations to them, all the infrastructure that's necessary to do that. Um, and these are folks, uh, I mean, we were one or more nurses short most of the past 15 months. That it, It's not an easy thing to staff. Uh, the staff were exhausted like they are everywhere. And yet they stepped up and they provided outstanding service to the, uh, to the larger community. That's wonderful to hear. Very inspiring. And, and uh, yeah, I'm glad to hear so much community strength within, within the tribes. Now, in addition to all of this local work, you are in India and in Nepal working on a COVID phase three vaccine. No, actually, I'm, that, that phase three trial is here with the Nooksack and Lummi Indians. So um, when uh, oh, okay, my friends at the, at the University of the Infectious Disease Program uh, there wanted to test a new vaccine. It's called the Novavax vaccine. It's a, it's a much more traditionally made vaccine, so it takes a little longer to manufacture it. They were just getting ready to apply for that uh, um, permission to give the vaccine to everybody in the public. So we're just finishing the first phase of the study and starting the second. And uh, so Nooksack and Lummi came together and are both sponsoring that phase three trial. Um, and a number of uh, tribal leaders stepped forward and volunteered to be in this trial. Uh, it's just astounding their generosity. They provided the space. They provided staffing um, to run this trial. People from the university, uh, the infectious disease program at UW were very generous in their time too. It's been a, a wonderful project to not only provide uh, some vaccine early on, uh, but it also has provided uh, knowledge about how effective those vaccines are in Native people. And uh, it's a very important uh, piece of work that the tribes uh, have uh, decided they wanted to do. And uh, we just today had the, today's the first week we're doing a crossover. It's basically, it's a immunized uh, about two-thirds of the people got vaccine to start with, about one-third got placebo. So they, they willingly chose to participate in a study that was placebo-controlled. And we just started this week giving the people that were on the placebo arm uh, uh, the vaccine. Um, 
they, they had been controls before, now we're immunizing everybody. Um, but they willingly spent a good deal of time putting themselves at some risk in order to further science. Um, it's, uh, it's extraordinary how generous and publicly minded and thoughtful and caring about uh, the community that they've been. I, I also didn't mention that uh, there's something called monoclonal antibodies and you have to infuse them over a period of time in people that have COVID. And Lummi has uh, an astounding achievement. They, uh, they have actually, uh, I think, over 30, maybe 40 now people they've given infusion therapy to. Um, I can tell you that in San Juan, our hospital doesn't do it. The university clinics there don't do it. Uh, the health department doesn't do infusion therapy. So they're doing something that is cutting edge, highly effective, and, and uh, their people, they're serving at, at a much higher level than what other communities are able to do or willing to do. Um, so they, I, I guess I got to say, I can't say enough about uh, Dakota Lane and the team from Lummi or the, 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 the team that's been put together by, by Nooksack. I'm one of the doctors that participates in that. But no, that's, that's right here uh, on the Lummi reservation with, both, uh, with participation from both Nooksack and Lummi. Um, members uh, doing science for the public good. So I should maybe notice and uh, announce you're also a, a clinical assistant professor at the University of Washington. Uh, so I guess you've been off work a little <laughs> bit lately. Um, I've been working probably 14 hours a day, most days of the week for 15 months. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much at the point of exhaustion, honestly. And, and I'm not the only one doing that. Most healthcare providers are working extraordinarily long hours. Uh, our staff at the clinic, as I said, we were short-staffed in nursing uh, on, at Nooksack um, uh, for a long time. Uh, so, yeah, like other healthcare providers, you simply, in a situation like this, you just suck it up and get the job done. Um, yeah, yeah, and that's, I mean, that's incredibly commendable in a, and uh, I have family also in medical and healthcare that have been the same thing, just almost nonstop. And it's, it's inspiring to watch. And uh, I hope we're at least near some kind of peak here. Uh, what is your thoughts on this? How are vaccines being taken? Are we, are we getting to a point where we might be, you know, herd immune at some point, or, you know, where do you think this all stands right now? Well, it's, a, it's a little bit complex, but I am I am an academic geek, as you said. I'm both a, a clinical assistant professor at UW in the School of Public Health. I'm also an adjunct professor of global health at Yongming University in Taipei. I take medical students from both those schools and take them to India and Nepal to do service learning projects, and I study how that, that participation all modifies the course of their professional careers after that. Um, but I do the academic stuff. So what I can tell you is that um, most communities in the month of May will uh, saturate the uptake of vaccine. There will be plenty of vaccine for everybody. In San Juan County, where I'm the health officer, we're kind of there already. We have about 3,000 doses we're giving next week. Uh, the potential to give them, we're probably going to give half of those would be my guess, maybe a little more. And we're going to uh, in our over 65 age group, we're up at, up to 87% immunization rates. Um, under that, we're a lot lower, of course, um, but we'll probably hit uh, around 70%, which is what you'll need for herd immunity. 
But San Juan is an outlier. <laughs> We've had no deaths in the whole county out there. Um, and that's a, for a whole, for a county level, that's, there aren't a lot of counties that have that kind of record. Um, so we've, and we've been very fortunate access to vaccine. We, we have the ability, we've had the ability to get vaccine, uh, a variety of vaccines to the population there. But I think most counties are, will probably achieve uh, community immunity or herd immunity, if you will, uh, this month. Um, most all other counties are going to have the capacity to have all the vaccine they need to do that um, in the month of May. However, um, national estimates are running at, you know, it's going to be really close. There's going to, there may, there may be a big enough pool of people that we won't reach herd immunity. That would be a a really horrible thing. (laughs) People have put in a huge amount of effort. We have an amazingly safe and effective set of vaccines to work with, but people have to choose to get them. And if they don't get them, they not only hurt themselves, but they, they potentially put the entire system at risk. What herd immunity is going to prevent is the risk of our whole healthcare system coming down, being overwhelmed. Well, you're going to see that in India in the next week. You're going to see a, uh, an entire health system fail at a national level. You're having 300,000 new cases a day. Um, wait a minute. Wait, wait. I'm sorry. Can, can you repeat that? I know India has been has been in a bad way, but what was that? No, it was in a bad way. Now it's in a worse way. So they were having about 200,000 cases a day. Today, they had 300,000 cases in one day in India. And today was the highest rate of of new cases of COVID in the entire pandemic happened today. Um, uh, So they don't have, we we as an advanced country and a wealthy country have have a vaccine for people. Most countries they may never have vaccines for everybody. It's really important that we immunize everybody at a global level as soon as we can. Uh, because if it doesn't go, these bugs don't know there's a line on the ground they're not supposed to cross. These bugs are going to get around globally no matter what. And as long as we have a population of people that's not fully immunized, it's going to continue. It, we may be able to get it go from pandemic where your infrastructure can fail and many, many people can die to endemic where there are sporadic cases and only local outbreaks. But that's going to be the situation for a year or more, uh, maybe longer, maybe much longer. The other thing, since we're talking, there's two more things that are sort of bad news that everybody should know. One is there are these these variant viruses. Most of them aren't terrible, um, but some are. There's a P1 uh, from Manaus in Brazil it went through and, and 75% of people got the regular virus. Two months later, the P1 virus came in, the, the variant virus. 50% of those people that had just had the regular virus became infected. So there are variants that are really scary. Um, there, there was an outbreak right in Whistler, British Columbia, over 100 cases of P1 um, just in the past weeks, few weeks. Um, the, the B117, which is the UK version is a pretty, pretty established in Washington state. It's about 40% of the cases right now. And, um, the doubling time is 12 days. So we're going to see these variants, which are 50% more likely uh, that, that, that there'll be 50% more people for every person that gets, gets the infection. And they're 55% more likely to lead to death. So there are some really bad, and the sooner we get people immunized, the lower the chance of these variants spreading. It's critically important. And this P1 variety, if it, it's not really good at spreading. It's, not, it's going to be outperformed by these other viruses for the most part in terms of communicability. 
but it could definitely be put us all back a long way by having a, a virus that is not uh, not stoppable by our current vaccines. I have to make a whole new vaccine to stop it. That's a realistic possibility. Um, so the uh, there really is a some very serious uh, problems that, that we're looking at. I think in 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 the globally when you look at the at the global risk. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I I think that uh, some people will just not take it seriously until it uh, until it lands on them directly, and they learn the hard way uh, what they should have learned earlier. Sure. The second thing I was going to mention uh, there. There's also a great deal of morbidity, which no one's talked much about. They're just starting to talk about it. I'm, I'm, uh, help, I'm with some partners down at the university, some different partners from infectious disease. We're applying for an NIH grant to study what's called long COVID or the morbidity from COVID, the long-term morbidity. So viruses, uh, unlike the vaccine, it just is briefly in your body and goes away. The viruses incorporate themselves into your genome and, and can be deemed a chronic disease. Uh, about 10% of healthcare providers, a fresh study just hot off the press shows that one in 10 healthcare providers that had mild COVID, you know, very mild disease, have long-term um, injury from that, that, that may be, may be lifelong. Pulmonary, cardiac, um, uh, neurologic complications are, are pretty common and can last for months or maybe years. We don't know yet. So the morbidity, mortality is all that we, anybody talked about before, but we're beginning to get enough handle on mortality. We're beginning to look, what about these chronic disease or the what gets called long COVID? It's going to be a real problem too. And that's the worrisome thing. That's why children in particular should get vaccinated as soon as is possible because they would have this infection potentially for their whole life, the consequences of it. Um, so I think it's it's really important that people know that they they need to be protected against this, uh, both because of, obviously you don't want to die, but it's also really important you not develop these pulmonary, cardiac, neurologic complications, some of which can be very long-standing. Uh, right now, in the uh, in the last minute that I have with you, Doctor, is there is there silver lining? Do you see at least in the in the long term or the short term? Are we you know, are the vaccines going to keep developing? Will there be more vaccines? Well, the <laughs> the development of these vaccines uh, in in under a year, vaccines that are highly effective and very safe were developed. That's ex- historically unprecedented. It's taken seven, four years was the quickest a vaccine had ever been developed. And typically it's seven to 20 years for a vaccine to be developed. So these vaccines are extraordinary and very, very safe. I mean, and, and we're able to monitor the safety signals like these six women that we got, got blood clots from the, from the J&J vaccine, that we found that so quickly, we now understand it really well. And we're going to be able to, to work around that by, you know, it's probably a fine vaccine for men. It's probably a fine vaccine for women over 50. We can figure out how to use that vaccine correctly. So, but, but just the, the speed and the, it's just an astounding intellectual achievement. What's, what's happened. But the real human story is more important than that is that, you know, I found people that I really care about and that I've worked and struggled with that have become close friends where you bond and you, you, you know, you really are doing something worthwhile that those kinds of friendships are forged in fire. 
And they're the kinds of friendships which last a lifetime and can be the basis of doing some more great work as we move forward. Right now, everybody's exhausted, though, and they need rest. But, but going forward, there, there is, there's always a silver lining to uh, challenge and, and suffering. Thank you so much for joining me today, uh, Frank James, Dr. Frank James, Travel Medicine Northwest, as well as many other uh, things that you're involved in. I really do appreciate your expertise and uh, your, your support here in the community. It's, it's a pleasure talking with you, and I hope your listeners enjoy the conversation. You can find more episodes of Times Like Now wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Google Casts, and more. I'm Trevor Collins. Email me, Trevor, at timeslikenow.com. Thank you, Jay Cody Robertson, for original music. I look forward to speaking with you next time.